So if I could ask you to please stand if you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is from Genesis chapter six. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch, and this is how you're going to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. When the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and everything that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, and the truths that you teach us in your word. Lord, we trust and we know that the biblical flood was a historical event. We also know, Lord, that you're using it to teach us things that are important, to teach us about who you are, about who we are, about what our problem is, about what our solution is. Uh, you're teaching us about the main story of the Bible, what it is that the Bible and what it is that Christianity is really all about. And you're teaching us about, uh, about your, your, your desire and your intense desire to be in relationship with us through covenant. So we pray that you would help us to see those things. We especially help us to see Jesus and what he's done for us as we study this passage today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.
I'm, uh, I picked up, I love reading books about ancient history for fun. Don't ask me why. And I picked up this new book uh, called The History of the Ancient World by a, a historian named Susan Wise Bauer. And as I was reading it, she hits this chapter about, um, about the flood narrative. And it almost took me by surprise. I was shocked because I, I forgot for a minute what I was reading because I, I, li I was listening to it. I listened to a lot of Christian works. This was a book that's not written by a Christian author, and yet she starts to talk about the flood, and then right you know, in the beginning of the chapter, she says this, that the historian cannot ignore the great flood. It's the closest thing to a universal story that the human race possesses. And that shocked me for a minute because I knew this woman wasn't Christian, uh, and she wasn't making her best attempt to just discount the whole thing. She was, in fact, saying, hey, as a historian, the evidence for the flood, the great flood of the Bible, is so prolific and so universal that the historian can't ignore it. And, and many of you, we've talked about already the flood narratives of Mesopotamia that were unearthed, that predate the Bible, and we're going to talk about that again in a minute. But what she's talking about is something even more than that, something even bigger. And that's the fact that whenever European explorers went and encountered another civilization all across the world, no matter where they went, they ran into uh, a pre-existing flood narrative that was already there waiting for them. Just to name a few. Man, I wish we, I wish, you know, well, we got zero time today. <laughs> if ever I wanted to like geek out on the theology of a passage in the Bible, well, I guess it's all the time for me, right? But really want to do it today. No, we're going to try and uh, keep it as tight as I can. But I want you to hear some of these flood narratives from across the world. First, from Central America, the Toltec people had, a, had hi historical paintings and traditions that told of an ancient flood where only a few escaped by floating inside an enclosed vessel. After the flood, men multiplied and made a very high tower at which they sought to find shelter from when the world would be destroyed a second time. Uh, and in time, the languages were changed, and they not understanding each other, the people went to different parts of the world. One tribe actually says that the gods transported them from where they were to where they are now in Central America, which brings a whole new level of meaning to God dispersed them across the face of the earth. Uh, the Great Pyramid in Cholula, which is the biggest pyramid in volume, construction started in third century BC. Uh, the original narrative about the founding of that, uh, about, of that pyramid was, was not to be dedicated to Quetzalcoatl, but the original narrative said that 4,800 years after the creation of the world, seven people, whom were giants, survived by taking refuge in a cave at the top of a high mountain. And their captain, Xelhua, is said to have later built a great pyramid, the top of which was to reach the clouds. But the gods... Uh, beheld with wrath this edifice and irritated at the daring attempt of, of, of Xelhua. Uh, <laughs> they hur hurled fire on the pyramid. The numbers of the workmen perished. The work was discontinued. And then the monument was afterwards dedicated to Quetzalcoatl. 
in Colombia, South America. Uh, the tribes told that long ago the world produced men with unnatural inclinations, so perverse that the god Zantana saw this and opened the doors of the sky. And then one of their ancient chiefs, Chief Sezanukua, uh, built a magic boat, put all types of animals and other things inside it, four-footed animals, birds, all types of plants. It rained for four years, and at last the magical boat came to rest on the peak of a high, the high mountain Sierra Negra. Western Australia, I'm going by continent, just hitting the high points. Uh, Gajara, a man named Gajara and his family survived a worldwide flood on a raft and then set birds out to see if the waters had receded and pleased by the smell of cooking kangaroo as a sacrifice, uh, the god Nagaja placed a rainbow in the sky to stop the rain clouds. Uh, on Hawaii, Nu'u built a large boat to save his family from a flood. When the boat landed safely on Manokea, Nu'u offered a pig and coats and coconuts to thank the moon. And so the creator, having seen this, descends on a rainbow to reveal that he was the one who had saved mankind. East Africa, uh, God told two men to take seeds and an, take seeds and animals on a boat so they could survive a mountain-covering flood. And these men sent out a dove and then a hawk to see if the earth had dried up. Hundreds, hundreds of stories like that. You know, and what's, what's, what's breathtaking about all that to me is, is that they're all distant. They've all suffered corruption uh, as you would expect from a millennia-long game of telephone as, as the tribes handed these traditions down one after the other, uh, like you'd expect, but they all retain these big chunks of the picture that when you collect them all, when you do a textual critical survey of them, you can reconstruct every single part of the genitive narrative of the flood. Man, and you'd think that might convince somebody, don't you? <laughs> no. Well, look, it convinces the historians enough to say, look, we have to admit the, the flood was a, was a real event. These stories are based on a real historical event. They go back and forth on what that means. But for those of us that, that take the Bible seriously, as the revelation of God, it means that we all agree upon three things. Number one, that the flood was a real historical event. Number two, that the Bible depicts the flood as a global historical event. Now, even in the evangelical church, that is split. Some people think that it was, it, the Bible depicts it as a global flood because it actually was a global flood. Some people say that the Bible depicts it as a global flood using hyperbole to show the severity of man's sin and God's response uh, to that. And the third thing that everybody agrees on is that the writer of Genesis was conveying not just historical facts to us, uh, but ultimately the writer of Genesis was conveying to us theological meaning and supra-historical truth, what these events mean concerning God, concerning us, concerning our problem, concerning our solution. Disclaimers, me, I tend to be a global flood guy. 
I get there are some geological issues that we don't really have good answers for. However, I tend to be a geological flood guy, partly because I just, I really like, I like the idea of a geological flood, a global flood better. I love disaster movies, and the bigger the better, and so I really like that. But I'm also, in reading through positions of a localized flood, it seems to me they make a lot of assumptions about what the ancient world was like that we just don't know. And it also seems to me that both critics and local, uh, f- local flood Christians seem to base all of their arguments in natural elements without remembering that this is a supernatural event, uh, if it was anything. So I tend to be a global flood guy, but what we can agree on, and what I'm gonna stick with as we go through this series, because we can get lost in the weeds real quick about uh, all the academic debate that goes on But we can agree that the writer wasn't just giving us a history lesson. He was teaching us important things about who God really is. He was teaching us important things about what God is doing in the world. And he was teaching us uh, important things about what relationship to him is really like. And so that's going to be our plan today. All of those points are covered in this introductory chapter leading into the flood narrative, and so we're gonna hit it three ways. And I'm gonna throw out some, some $2 seminary words right now. <laughs> Bear with me, I'm gonna explain them. First is that the flood narrative is polemical, meaning uh, it's meant to correct some really bad ideas about God that were current at the time, uh, and surprisingly still popular today. <laughs> Second, the flood narrative is eschatological. That's a $3 seminary word. And that means, it's, eschatological means talking about the end things or end times or God's final movements in history and the judgment of the whole world. We believe the flood narrative is teaching things about that. And finally, it's relational. It's teaching us about what being in relationship with God is like. So that's our plan, and we're gonna hit those three things. First, the biblical flood is polemical. Polemic, again, means what? It means it's an argument that seeks to show how somebody's making really bad, is, 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 is purveying really bad ideas or giving really bad ideas about God or about God's work in the world uh, in this case. Uh, as I said earlier, we've all talked a little bit about the ancient Mesopotamian flood narratives. And it's true. In the, in the late 19th century, Western institutions... I mean like museums and universities being challenged in their Christian beliefs, which is hard for us to imagine at our little moment in culture, spent tons of money to send expeditions, geological or or archaeological expeditions to Mesopotamia to find physical evidence for the stories, uh, the historical stories in the early Bible. And they unearthed these tablets from Mesopotamia that predated the Bible and talked not only about the creation of the world, but also talked about the flood narrative. Uh, And sometimes in shocking the flood narrative especially, there were so many similarities to the flood narratives uh, that the, some, uh, half of the people you know, split right down the middle. Half said, look, this is cooperation of the early Bible stories. The other half of the people said, no, this just proves that the Bible is derivative of earlier stories and it's just one story among many. It's all the same. Everything's the same. 
Uh, and so here's one. Let me, let me just read, give you the highlights of one. It depends on what story you're talking about. It could be, there's one story called Atrahasis. Atrahasis means super wise. It's the name of the guy, the hero of the story. Uh, that's the, the, er, the latest one. Behind that is a, a tale called the Taylor, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, and the hero in that story is Utnapishtim. I'm going to go with him mainly because I like to say Utnapishtim. Uh, and there's a, there's a, we believe there's a textual tradition behind that called Eridu Genesis. It's hard to tell because they all overlap and borrow from one another, but here's the basic story. Uh, Utnapishtim, the Noah, the Mesopotamian Noah, is warned by one of the gods of the coming flood. He builds a massive ark. He loads in his family with two of each animal. After the rains, he releases birds to determine if the land is dry. The ark comes to rest on a mountain. He offers sacrifices to the god. You know the story. It was so, there were so many points of similarity to the story that the critics came and said, nah, look at that. Well, look at that. After all this, now we know that the Bible is just one, it's just, just one myth among many myths. There's all different kind of versions out there. One amongst many. The Bible is just the same, same old, same old as every other Mesopotamian creation myth. <clears throat> and so the critics, they're all about the similarities. But there are some striking differences in the account too that they don't often lead with or mention first. Uh, to begin with, after the standard intro of the ancient, the Mesopotamian flood story has the standard intro about how the gods made people out of clay and the blood of a sacrificed god and spit to be a slave labor force. We went over that in the beginning of Genesis, standard Mesopotamian creation story myth. But it goes on from there to say that in the Mesopotamian myth, the cause of the flood, the reason God sends the flood is that human beings become so noisy the chief god Enlil can't get any sleep. Uh, and so on a whim, he's like, oh, let's just wipe them out, descend the floods. It's a picture of a capricious, petty gods who are really a lot like us, grumpy, who are too grumpy when you wake them up in the morning and ready to just annihilate all life because they want to get another hour's sleep. Uh, contrasted with the biblical flood narrative, where it's a picture of God who waits millennia to the very last minute giving warnings, sending preachers, doing everything in his power to draw his errant creation back to him until the very last minute when Noah and his family are the last people on earth who still worship God and the cosmic redo is really the only option left on the table. It's a picture of a God who is just and will and must bring justice to the earth but a God who is patient and long-suffering and merciful. In the Mesopotamian myth, once the gods unleash the flood, it's so powerful and so raucous that they themselves become terrified. This text, the text talks about them cowering like dogs, screaming like eagles, and the gods themselves are like overwhelmed and terrified by what they've unleashed and hide waiting for it to be, for, for it to be over, and yet in, uh, which again is a picture of really all too human gods who are at mercy, at the mercy of the greater creation versus the biblical flood narrative where God is in utter control of all things 
Uh, he is in utter and total control over his creation and separate from it. Uh, and finally, the Mesopotamian myths. Uh, once the flood is unleashed and people are, and, and, and the humans are annihilated, they start to starve to death. They realize that they were dependent upon human sacrifice for their food. Uh, and they're like, they curse themselves for being so stupid as to wipe out their own source of food. Uh, and, and when, when uh, Utnapishtim, it, it turns out that Utnapishtim has been able to survive the flood, he offers a sacrifice to the gods and it's the, the text says they collected like flies on the body of the sheep to eat because they were all starving to death, cursing themselves for being so stupid, uh, thanking Enki, the god who warned Utnapishtim of the coming flood, and blessing him and giving him eternal life for saving the day. Uh, versus a picture of the God of the biblical flood who has zero dependence on his creation. And he ends the flood with promises of grace and promises of salvation for his people. Even though he realizes and recognizes that the nature of people is not gonna change. And so, the critics are all about the similarities, not so much about the differences. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's one of the devil's oldest tricks. It's an ancient sleight of hand move. Uh, it's all the same. It's one myth among many. The God of the Bible is just one God among many. Uh, the Christian religion is just one religion against many. Why should I believe you? You're just another religious zealot shelling your religion and trying to get other people to believe the same fantasies that you believe. They're all the same. But if I took a, my hand, I put two pills in my hand and I offered them to you, and they were both white, they were both round, and they both were the same size, and they both had A written on the top, and I held them out to you and I said, are these two pills the same? You would be reasonable by saying, yes, they're the same. But if I took those pills and turned them over, and one of them said aspirin, and the other said arsenic, and I asked you, are these two pills still the same? You would say, no, they're not the same. And why is that? It's because sometimes, and often, when we're talking about God especially, it's not the similarities that matter, it's the differences that matter. A lot of world religions teach the same thing about how we should treat each other on a horizontal scale. And people say, look, see, they're all the same. Until you say, okay, well, what's in your other hand? And when you look at what world religions teach about who God is, who we are, what our problem is, what our solution is, what our relational terms are with God and everything about trans, trans <sighs> traveling from this world to the next, and they're totally different. They're totally different, and that's the point. That's the point of this narrative, that the God of the Bible is not at all like the capricious, make-believe, angry, judgmental, always expecting something from you gods that we make up in our heads. The God of the Bible is radically different, and as it turns out, that's a very good thing. Second, second point, 
is that the biblical flood narrative is eschatological. $3 seminary word. We have a cardinal rule here at ResPres that we just don't throw out. We just don't do it. Don't use $2, $3 seminary words, uh, especially because we're, you know, most of the time when we do, we're just trying to sh- let everybody know how smart we are so that we'll be glorified. And, and um, my, you know, my elders are probably cringing right now. Uh, however, there's a certain sense where I want and we want people to understand that Christianity is a, is a millennia-old, four-century-old philosophical and religious tradition uh, that has all of these words as part of the vocabulary of that religion. I want you to come in face-to-face with that. However, we also want to explain what those things mean. Eschatological, it's a fancy word for saying end times, last things, the final movements of God in history when he brings judgment and brings uh, his people into and out of this world of death and into the new creation. Uh, and that's the big idea behind this story. As we go through the chapter by chapter, we go through section by section of the flood narrative, that's gonna come out more, it's gonna come out more, it's gonna come out more. It actually ends up being like the big whoa moment at the end of the flood narrative, at least for me. What the experts say, it's not super easy to see in the Old Testament, but the experts tell us that the ark itself is a kind of a, a miniaturized picture of all creation, of God's cosmic house temple that he built. Uh, The heavens above, the earth below, the world under the earth. The ark has three levels, the top level symbolizing heaven with the window in it, symbolizing the window of heaven that the rain comes through, second deck, uh, everything on the earth, third deck, everything below the earth. There's a door in the side of the ark that signifies the the, the door to the abyss where the waters come out of. Uh, I know it's not super clear, uh, but we, what is clear is that a miniaturized version of all creation enters into that ark and is preserved in it. And so as the ark is floating on the sea with Noah's family and two of every animal, it becomes a miniaturized picture of God's cosmic house of creation, three levels with a miniaturized version of his creation on board. We also know that whenever God gives detailed plans for something in the Old Testament, that it's, it's a picture of his, again, his celestial house. The, he gives detailed plans to, uh, to Moses for the construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the temple later. And every element of, that, of those instructions is a mirror image of the celestial temple of God. And they all have meaning. And so God here gives instruction for the ark which leads us to believe the same thing is happening. It's, again, a miniature version of God's cosmic temple. Easier to see in the New Testament where the apostle Peter says that the whole flood, the flood narrative, the whole thing was like a picture, uh, a real event that God made happen on earth that was a picture or a forecast of the bigger, uh, the bigger reality of the final destruction of the entire earth and the entire cosmos, not by water, this time by fire. Uh, and so he says it's this picture, right? So what's the, what's the picture? The picture is that God takes this miniaturized version of his terrestrial creation 
and he places it in the ark, which is a symbol of the celestial house of God, and then in God's house, he safely brings all these people and these animals out and through the corrupted world of death and into a new creation. And again, Peter says that our baptism is a picture of this too. Our baptism is a picture of this transition for us, being brought into God's house. That's what just happened to Starla. Brought into God's house, brought under his covenant, under his blessing, under his protection, with God's promises and seal upon her and upon us that God is bringing us through the world of death and is promising to bring us into the new world and the new creation and the new world of life, which is already happening. So what does that mean? Why, does that, why do we care? Uh, are we just geeking out on theology? What's the point? Is Genesis just an ancient version of fact checkers, just making sure that everybody got their, you know, redoing the stories and make sure everybody got their facts right? Uh, no, the point is that the flood narrative, it points to the main purpose of the Bible, the main story of the Bible, what God is doing, what following Jesus is all about. And the main purpose of the Bible is not about moral teaching for a better life. Sadly, there's just recent surveys, lots of surveys talking about how 80% of sermons or 80% of Christianity in the American church is about how to use biblical morality uh, to get a better life. You want better relationships. You want to improve your finances. You want to increase your career. You want to break through the spiritual bondage uh, of a six-figure income. <laughs> whatever it is that you really want, whatever your, you know, whatever your desires are about what you really want out of this life, Christianity is the answer for that. And we have, for, listen, for 40 years, maybe 50, the church has bought into that and tried to convince people to follow Jesus, not because of what he says in the Bible, but to follow Jesus because he's gonna make life easier for you. He's gonna give you what you want. He's gonna help you to reach your goals. Uh, He's gonna help you to have a better life now. And that is a big fat lie. Oftentimes, it gets worse. Oftentimes, life gets harder. Uh, The main purpose of the Bible is about how to get from this world to the next. That's the main purpose. Is there moral teaching in the Bible? Absolutely. Does God teach us about how life works best, how to love him and how to love one another so that we can mitigate some of the brutal reality of sin in the world? Absolutely. Does he show us how to act and how to behave so that we can portray his true character to the world? Absolutely. Do we do a good job of that? That's a whole other topic. Do we show people that God is just but merciful, long-suffering, patient, full of love, full of compassion, full of mercy, So yeah, there's morality in the Bible, but the main purpose is about how to get from this world 
to the next. Listen, it's one thing to say, God can help get you through that rough spot in your life. So can Buddhism. So can becoming a devotee at the Krishna temple. So can Islam. Uh, So can psychiatry. So can medication. Maybe so can your healing crystals and your essential oils and your tarot deck. It's a whole nother thing to say, God can get you through sin and death. And only Jesus is able to do that. And the last part is how he does that. The God of the flood is relational. Maybe the most remarkable difference about the God of the Bible is his intense desire to be in relationship, in close relationship, in intimate relationship with his people. Uh, And he does that by way of what the Bible calls a covenant. Uh, A covenant is was from the ancient world, it was a legal agreement between people, how, what was expected of each party in an agreement, but it's not just a legal agreement. The covenant is also uh, boundaries for within which relationships and loving relationships can thrive and develop, and that's more uh, the way the term is being used in Christianity. So really the big questions are, what are the terms? What are the terms of our relationship with God? What does this covenant mean? What's God supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? How does it work? Uh, And covenant terms with Noah are really straightforward. God promises, God makes a promise to Noah, I will save you from the flood. And Noah's part is to believe that God's telling him the truth. To have faith. Uh, to trust that what God is telling him is true. And that's how the covenant has always worked. That's how the relationship with God between his people has always been. That's how it was for Adam in the garden. Right after Adam, Adam and Eve sinned, God came and said, one of your descendants is gonna undo this whole mess. And Adam believed that God's promise was true. He named Eve the mother of all living. It was a sign of his belief in God's promise. Through that, he was saved. Same thing for Abraham. Uh, God promises Abraham that through him, he's gonna have a son, and that through his son, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Even though he's 100 years old, even though his wife Sarah is 75 years old, even though she's barren, they've never had kids, Uh, One of the most beautiful descriptions of a true and saving faith is Paul talking about Abraham in in Romans where he says, this is what Abraham's faith was this, that even though what God promised him seemed crazy, he still believed it. He believed it so much that when God asked him to sacrifice the very son that he gave him, he knew or he believed so strongly that God's promise was going to be true that if he actually went through with sacrificing his son, God would be obligated to bringing him back to life because God had promised, it's through this son that I'm gonna make all these promises come true. He was so sure of God's faithfulness to his promises 
that he was willing to go through was sacrificing his son, believing that God would bring him back from the dead. And in that, God used that whole story to bring a picture of Jesus. Uh, And his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Meaning he believed in God's promise. God counted him completely righteous. Uh, And what about Noah? Noah has the same kind of faith. Listen, can you imagine the commitment? God comes to Noah and says, it's going to rain, I'm gonna flood the entire earth. I want you to build a 450 foot ark in your front yard. What if he went through all that trouble, expended all that energy and it never rained? What if his, you know, who knows what was happening around him, maybe his neighbors were ridiculing him, maybe they were storming the ark, who knows? We don't know what was happening, but imagine just the ridicule that he may have suffered. There's no, the public nature of his faith commitment, there's no hiding a 450 foot ark in your front yard. But God had made him a promise, and Noah believed it. He believed it so much that his faith was made evident by what he did. He built the ark. Uh, well, let's get real. <laughs> I don't know how long it took Noah to build that ark, but I will guarantee you he quit about 50 times while he was building it. What am I doing? Just dropping the hammer at the end of the day. Uh, man, why am I doing this? This is crazy. This is so stupid. It would be so much easier to believe that all the gods are basically the same. It would be so much easier just to make religion about me <laughs> rather than this long, slow, grinding process about giving up me. So much easier to just fit in and enjoy life, but he kept coming back to it. Finished, finished the ark. Why? Ultimately, bottom level, foundational level, because the Bible says that God found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the Hebrew way of saying God gave grace to Noah. Uh, And because of that grace, As much as Noah believed what he was doing was crazy, he believed that the promise of God, he believed in the promise of God even more. So let's wrap this all up. What's our promise? In our age and in our time, what is the promise that God has made to us? We have the full revelation of what all these other promises were pointing to, what the ark pointed to, Uh, what the initial sacrifice that God made in front of Adam and Eve in the garden, what all the entire Bible is continually pointing through, all the ages of history, pointing to the promise that God fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus came and lived among us. He fulfilled the law for us by living a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay for our sins and that by a simple and persevering faith in Christ's finished work, we can be sure that we are already 
in God's cosmic temple house and that he is bringing us through the storm of this life and that he will bring us into the new creation that he's promised. And you might, man, you may take a minute to get started in that. (laughs) I did. (laughs) You may take a minute to get started. You might have some false starts like Abraham did. You might bail out a couple of times or try to make things happen your own way to speed things up and make a giant mess of your life like Abraham. But you keep finding yourself coming back to the church because you just can't get, you just can't get past the fact that you just know this is, this is where it's at. This is true. You might want to quit 50 times. You might be tempted often to believe that you'd be happier if you could just make more things about you and your desires, but you're going to keep finding yourselves back at it, back at the long and brutal slog of not making everything about you, back at believing what God says more than what the world says. And why? Why do we keep finding ourselves coming back? Why do we keep finding ourselves believing that what God, in what God says more than what the world says, even when it hurts? It's because God has made a promise to us to get us safely from this world into the next. And he intends to keep it no matter what. And that is an encouraging thought. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promises to us. We, uh, we the false starters of the Christian faith, <laughs> we the do-it-yourselfers, we the make-it-all-about-me Christians, Lord, we're trying, we've all collectively tried just about every way to do it wrong in our collective experience is that trusting what you say always works out better than trusting what we think or what the world says. So we thank you for that, Lord. Your grace, your spirit is upon us as a gift because of the sacrifice of Jesus and your promising that through whatever hardship and whatever storm you allow in our lives, you are going to bring us through and we will reach, we will reach that mountaintop and we will enter into a whole new creation and we can trust that that's true because you promised and you cannot lie. So we thank you for that, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.